Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is Ian Penman. Ian's a journalist and music critic whose work spans several decades in art mediums. He began writing for the British music magazine New Musical Express in the 1970s and has since written for many popular and special interest publications, including Uncut, Sight and Sound, The Guardian, and, and of course, City Journal, where he's been um, a, a regular presence for several years now, uh, writing wonderful essays on Bob Dylan and Jim Morrison, journalist Joan Didion, novelist Gene Reese, philosopher Walter Benjamin, and others. He's the author of It Gets Me Home, This Curving Track, and has just published Fassbinder, Thousands of Mirrors, a marvelous new book that looks at the life and work of the German filmmaker Rainer Werner Fassbinder. So today we're going to discuss Ian's new book and Fassbinder's work and influence. So Ian, it's great to see you here in New York. It's and, great to uh, be here. Glad, glad you could visit. Um, so to dive into this book uh, and Fassbinder as this larger-than-life personality, you he combined self-destructive behavior. He died, uh, I think you could say, from that behavior at the young age of 37, yet with this extraordinary, in fact, to me, hard-to-imagine level of productivity and work. So you note in the book that he was ruled by excess, including in terms of his capacity for work. So could you talk a little bit just about how productive he was, how many movies he made, and about how he could be so productive given the kind of self-destructive aspect of his personality. Well, I think one of the interesting things, that's, uh, I think there's a lot of tensions and contradictions in him and in the book. Um, and one of them is that thing where he is, uh, we would in general, I think, say of a person that they're well-adjusted if they're productive. It's one of our paradigms, I think, one of our modern paradigms is, uh, is, um, is, is to love your work and to do a lot of it and to be productive and so on. It's, we think of it as something healthy, I think, and something that would make you healthy and whole. Um, but the interesting thing when looking at Fassbinder is you think, uh, yes, he was excessive in his drug use and all these bad things that we think aren't healthy, that aren't, don't make you a good and whole person. But if you look at the way he worked, he, he, he worked in what seems in a quasi unhealthy way as well so it makes you question the whole idea of is productivity you know healthy is is labor necessarily a good thing why do we think this because he he like everything he throws it into ex uh, extremes you know he's like he, he nothing is ever um quiet or normal in fastbinder everything's exaggerated so even the thing that should be healthy in him which is at least he worked well even you, that you, you wonder, is, right? Well, he, he. How many movies did he wind up making? Well, it's hard to say because there's. Um, I think there's like forty-eight films, but there's also various TV series, TV one-offs, various plays he did, various things he acted in, and um, I think uh, at the end he was even trying to write a novel as well at the same time as doing all. And the thing to remember about some of these films, well, a lot of these films, is that he conceived of them. A lot of them. He conceived of them, wrote the script, uh, directed, uh, sometimes did the cinematography, sometimes did the editing, uh, sometimes acted in them, <laughs> and uh, sometimes did the, uh, the, the set design, you know, and so on. So there were certain films uh, that 
He's not only working in a conventional; he's doing six jobs at once. It's, it's extraordinary. So, and he, the other thing I think to bear in mind um, is that this idea of him as uh, kind of excessive with the, the drinking and the drugs and the smoking and everything—that was only relatively late. I think it wasn't his entire, you know. Um, so his his main decade was the 1970s. He sort of started in 1969 working and he died in 82 so i think the drugs only began like 77 78 78 i think is when it, it really clicked in so for, for most of the 70s when he did th this thing of doing sometimes he would do two three four films in a year and as i say sometimes do four jobs on each film he wasn't out of control on drugs and drink and stuff. He was, you know, it, work was his drug in it, in that sense, I think. He, he um, I think you note in the book that uh, when he died, he was basically setting up five new projects. He, he, he just was always thinking of, of what he could be doing. But these were not invariably, but, but overwhelmingly high quality uh, films, the TV series he did were were uh, remarkable, and and a lot of them truly stand up today. So you know we'll we'll get into that a little more. You know his his upbringing. Um, you know it it left a, a real influence on his films. You you write in the book, and he was born in the ruins of Germany at the end of World War II, and there was a kind of American presence that that was unavoidable at the time, obviously, directly in terms of the military occupation, um, post-war military occupation, but also culturally, right? In the movies that, that uh, became kind of his education uh, in, in how to think about the world and how to think about life. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit about his upbringing and that American current. Well, I think, um, I think a lot of German... Uh, that generation of, of filmmakers and painters especially, I think, but also musicians, were very influenced by German um, models and things, you know, the music, musicians by rock and roll music, obviously, and uh, the filmmakers by, uh, in a similar way, the French are. But I think, unlike the French, they didn't take it too seriously. I think the difference with the Germans was it was more like it's more like a collage or a montage or something. Oh, we'll take this bit from this film noir and we'll take this bit from this melodrama and let's see what happens if we if we film that in uh, in G German with uh, with ugly looking, you know, a very un-Hollywood actors or something. Right. And I think um, they all, uh, but there's a curious loop there as well because I think a lot of the American Hollywood films they liked were actually made by in the first place by German, Jewish, European refugees or emigres in the first place. I mean, people like Billy Wilder or Fritz Lang made these films that were, on one level, they were trashy gangster films or westerns or bank heist, you know, or romance or westerns. And on the other hand, they were informed by this very particular European sensibility, you know, of people like Wilder and Lang and Douglas Sirk, who was Fassbinder's favourite, who grew up in uh, in the Weimar years, who grew up working in the theatre, who grew up, uh, you know, went to uh, university there and mixed with all kinds of different um, 
strata in uh, intellectual and artistic and social. So, and then they came to America and made these incredible films, which um, which shaped uh, American speech and image. I think in in a way that is is still stunning. You know, if if you just think of someone like Billy Wilder alone, um, this kind of cynical, flirtatious. Uh, uh, sexy, um, funny uh, uh, dialogue didn't really exist before that, you know, and they invented it out of the air in a sense. And things like noir and uh, certain ways of doing uh, Cirque, the way Douglas Cirque uses color in his films. So, uh, fast, young filmmakers like Fassbinder would look at these films and, in a very uncynical way, I think, you know, they weren't looking at them on a film course, being taught by academics or something. They were literally going to the local... Theater s- and, yeah. and watching the movies. And yeah. um, Fassbinder in his childhood said, you know, he, he would go and see two, three, four films a day, which you could do in those days, I think, you know. And, but um, there's a good side to that, I think, which is, you know, we're talking about his productivity and so on. And um, I think he took lessons from people like Wilder and Lang and Cirque, which is not to be too precious about it, just get the work done. Just, just get the work done. Um, on the other hand, I think the if you look at it in a slightly detached way, you think in Fassbinder certainly. I think there's a kind of this living through images, which I think can be become unhealthy. I think his whole view of life was one that was shaped by these films and by this kind of world of images and stuff. And I'm not sure that he knew how to live outside that, which, again, looping back to your previous question, could be one of the reasons why he worked so much. It's because he would finish a film, but that would force him to go back to life. But he didn't really know how to live like normal people live. I don't think he, you know, he didn't have the normal range of emotions. It was either all or nothing. It was one extreme or the other. So he would immediately start making another film because that was the one place he felt comfortable, you know, and it's... <laughs> it's, um, well, speaking of his, uh, his personality, you describe him at one point as a monster of selfishness. Um, yet he was also capable of generosity and many of the actors and others involved with his film productions were devoted to him, clearly, because they kept coming back and, and appearing again and again. And, you know, you also note several times in the book that external nature is almost completely missing in his movies, that so many of his films are set indoors, in rooms. There's a, there is a certain kind of claustrophobia to it. the most urban filmmakers ever, yes. Yeah, and there's also a bleakness to, to a lot of his work. Um, you know, I, I haven't watched... Uh, a lot of these films uh, in many, many years, but I, I, I remember them ending often in broken relations, death, sometimes suicide. So I, I wonder as you revisited Fassbender in writing this book and started rewatching some of these films, which were very meaningful to you as a younger person, uh, did you find your attitude toward the movies and toward Fassbender changing? Did you, do you have a different view of him now? As, as an older person yourself now. Yeah. I mean, uh, on the one hand, um, I think uh, my admiration for him has grown exponentially. I think the achievement is astonishing. To do that much work and for so much of it to be top flight work, to be really good work, innovative work, um, work that you can revisit, that stands up, um, 
anyone who's had anything to do with film or TV industry know, you know, I now know uh, it's very difficult to get anything made, especially if it's a very personal vision and especially if you're it's being made with someone else's money. It's very difficult to get one film made, you know, and it's like uh, in the space it took other filmmakers to make, you know, one film. He would have made five or something. So I think the thing about being a monster of selfishness, I think some of that is just... Uh, a natural thing to do with film directors and producers, you know, you have to be uh, to get anything done there has to be an element of that and uh, one of the reasons the people were devoted to him was because if you worked for another director, you'd do this one film and then it'd be five years before anything else, whereas with Fassbinder, even if you'd fallen out with them it's like, you know, another bus will be along in a minute, you know, kind of thing. You you get another opportunity (laughs) soon. So, and um so, yes, on the one hand, I think my admiration, just as technical, as a, an artist, as someone who is, it's, I, just, I, I'm more amazed now because I know more about how difficult it is to do those things. On the other hand, I do have a problem with the pessimism, the fatalism, the claustrophobic view. I think it's a, a worldview that's very attractive to the person, you know, the, the age I was back then. You know, it's like essentially still a teenager or very early adult um, and in the punk years as well it's very attractive it's but it is I think a very adolescent almost view of the world it's like all adults are hypocrites all relationships are doomed there's no hope you know it's like it's it's almost like a the filmic equivalent of a door song or something it's like no there's no way out we're all going to die and there's nothing good and I think that's a problem because it's like almost every film it's like that. I think there's in the book I do a tally of how right, right. Yeah, how, how they end. Yes. How do they end? How do things end? They end badly. They all end badly in both senses of that phrase. I think, and I, I don't think. I mean, you you couldn't. He couldn't have sustained that much longer. And I think we have to remember that he didn't grow up in a sense. He did die young, relatively young, and um, his whole life was lived within this kind of bubble of, of theatre and film. And I think um, I think the worldview is a problem. I think there are, you know, there are moments in some of the films of, of, of tenderness and love and, and some hope. But um, even at the time, I think people on both sides of the political uh, divide had problems with him because of this, because of this kind of... It's like, it's not worth doing anything, we're all doomed. Some of that as well, it should be said, I think some of it was very specific to that post-war moment in Germany. I think he was very, he'd seen it up close and the adults were hypocrites, you know, and it was like post-war, a lot of the Nazis ended up just walking into nice jobs and continuing and so on. And I, he, on a macro level, but also... He saw it in his parents and parents' friends and stuff, and the strange silences and the things that weren't talked about. And so, I think that I think that informed him personally that that, that view of life. But um, if you, as I say, it's attractive to the young person I was then. But if you do, if you don't die young. If you do get into middle age and late, early late middle age, or whatever, it's not. I don't think it's a view that's very attractive or rounded or you know, it's like it is too bleak. There, but there, there is a, a an amazing kind of cinematic quality to a lot of these films. Uh, you know, if you were if you were to say where should somebody start with Fassbender and, and Criterion editions, a lot of these films are now available uh, to people in a way that might not have been in recent years. 
Where would you start? The early films on the post-war experience? or uh, Several, although I, I was going to say that um, we were talking about how things end and they end badly and so on. The other day when I was doing these clips, uh, picking clips of, from Fassbinder films for this event, we, we grouped together three endings, three of my favorite endings, and they are really bleak. But they are so beautiful, and technically they're stunning. But they're they're beautiful to watch and listen to, and you can you almost forget that it's so <laughs> it's so bleak just because it's done so beautifully. But um, yeah, the I wouldn't start I wouldn't start with some of the bleaker later films. No, if if you want to, um, I think the mid period is his best, and those are the nearest the films get to being rounded films or um, Fear Eats the Soul, Fox and His Friends, films like that, which are on one level almost like soap opera or melodrama. And he, in some cases he did borrow plot lines from Douglas Sirk and stuff. But that middle period and uh, from about um, uh, Fear Eats the Soul to The Marriage of Maria Braun, um, there's several films in that period that are gorgeous visually and not quite as bleak as some of the other ones uh, I think and um, and some of the other ones are very <laughs> bleak indeed some of the early ones are, are probably just of interest to Fassbinder completists where he's learning how to make films with his friends basically although they are you know even they have you know are quite stunning in some ways um, but yeah now he he, um, he worked in television in a way that uh, has kind of anticipated our age of quality serialized shows like The Sopranos, Breaking Bad, and so on. There was, and I remember seeing a chunk of this when I was a young man myself, uh, his, his monumental Berlin Alexanderplatz. And then there was a science fiction television uh, movie, I think two-part movie, that remains, as you, you describe in the book, startlingly contemporary, anticipating artificial realities, screen technologies, movies like The Matrix. So I, I guess he was ahead of his time in this regard, right? He, he didn't distinguish between film and television, and he was, he was aware of the power of that kind of medium too. Uh, well, again, like his, his mentor, Douglas Sirk. I mean, Douglas Sirk is well-known uh, for making a series of melodramas, a very a kind of um, what used to be called slightingly in the 50s, women's pictures, and the films with Rock Hudson and uh, All That Heaven Allows, Written on the Wind, and so on. And, um, but he actually, uh, Cirque, uh, did a whole range. He, he worked in every possible... He did, you know, uh, westerns, he did war films, he did uh, comedies, he did, he did just about an, everything that you could do. And I think... Um, that rubbed off on Fassbinder because I think he, yes, he worked in television, he worked in theatre, he worked in film, he did um, the sci-fi film you mentioned is is stunning. I mean, just the way it looks is stunning, and but it's very prescient as well about digital, the age we live in. And um, there's another late, there's a film from '78 called The Third Generation, which is about uh, terrorism in Germany and stuff, but. I would say to anyone, watch the first five minutes of that. Watch the credit, the credit sequence, the first five, ten minutes from 90s. It's stunning. I mean, like the TV sci-fi thing, 
it looks like it could have been made yesterday. The use of sound, the use of it's got. Um, it's the first time I ever saw um, a video machine in a in a, a film, and it has kind of it, it it has people watching TV and videotapes and listening to the music, and it's this very fractured kind of. Uh, again, it's like the way we live now, you know. I think, and uh, it just the look and the color and the, the way he uses sound is is stunning. Um, he had. Sorry, Ken. no, no. Go ahead, Ian. Sorry, but he had he had other TV projects he wanted to do. He had a whole bunch, and I think in some cases, I think it might have been better for him. I think that way of working fast, and and that that should be stressed as well about his. He he was very. He never brought things in over budget, and or he, they were always under time and under budget, and uh, he was very good at that. And I think one of the problems with some of the later films is that. They, the, the the budgets start to get inflated. You know, they became big productions. You know, with big uh, big money involved and so on. And I don't think it suited him. I think um, he suited uh, working quicker, far more. And I think once he started to get into inflated uh, territory of some of the later films, it, it didn't work well. Uh, you you write in the book about, and I found this a very, you know something I could relate to very much. You, we were talking about this before the podcast. You know, you, you write about the excitement that, that art house cinema could once generate where, you know, filmgoers would await the latest Fassbender, Fassbender movie or, or Nicholas Rogue movie. You know, these repertory theaters would program film surveys of great directors. And... And I spent a lot of time at the Brattle Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts, you know, watching Bergman movies and Werner Herzog and Truffaut and, and Fassbender. You know, that uh, world seems diminished, if, if not gone. You know, movie houses have obviously closed everywhere. And I, I wonder today how many viewers still think in terms of the auteur, director, and creator of, of some kind of film. Uh, yet... You know, at the same time, these these Fassbender films and and indeed much of cinema history are probably more available today than ever before via Netflix or Criterion. So I wonder, you know, what what's your view on this shifting history, which intersects with the history of technology? Well, I mean, I think it's inevitable. I think it would be too easy for, I mean, especially someone of my age to just kind of you know lose their temper and be a bit grumpy about, you know, people watching films on their phones or only streaming or stuff, you know, so it should be seen in the cinema on a proper screen, you know. Um, and I think there's uh, enormously good things on Netflix. And I think there's a uh, criterion where you can watch a lot of, you know, I think um, it, it does do a good job of getting uh, young people excited about a lot of this the stuff that would disappear. Because even it should be remembered that um, even when back in the seventies and eighties, it wasn't that easy to see a lot of Fassbinder. It's only recently, and thanks to people like Criterion, that I've seen some of it. I mean, like his TV series Eight Hours and Not a Day, for instance, or the the sci-fi film World on the Wire. I tried to see them for years and years and years and, and couldn't. And it's only recently that I've been able to to see them because because they're online and so on. So. You know, it's it's uh, it's fifty fifty. It's um, I do I would in general prefer to see films and certain films on a screen because I think I think you lose an immense amount even on TV. I think you lose a lot 
um, certain films. And uh, but you know, I think it's inevitable. And I think if it's done, if people, if it's done well, then yeah, fine. And there's a lot of good stuff on, you know, Netflix and so on. Well, no there's question. There's a lot of rubbish I, I, as well. But <laughs> yes, it's just this incredible flood of, of content, some of it but high I do quality. Th- yeah. and I do think, I mean, I'm not sure about this. I, 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 I personally haven't read anyone writing about this. In uh, It's like when people want to, to read about photography, for instance, they still go to Susan Sontag and Roland Barthes and so on. And it's the same with, I think there's a, you're right, I think there's a big shift in how people view, and I think there's something fundamentally different about the kind of Netflix-type experience, you know, where you sink into this kind of multi-episode, kind of fugue state almost. And I think you do, I think there is something, there is a, a paradigm shift there. I think it is something that should be thought about, and, you know, someone should write about it well, and, you know, how is it different? How are we what? We are watching differently, I think. And, um, you know, just watching things in your own home, I think, is very different from making the effort and going to uh, the the space of a cinema with a a crowd of people and seeing it and seeing something larger than you. Um, It's it's a fundamentally different experience. Not better necessarily, but, you know, it's it's definitely different. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. Now, uh, a, a final question, just about the form of the book. It's uh, it's it's not um, a long book. It is written um, in a very very accessible way. It's it's fascinating. It's got autobiographical components. Um, Why? But but it's also written in a kind of uh, uh, I wouldn't say fragmentary way, but it's 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 um, it's like a montage almost of impressions and feelings, although if you read it carefully, it does have a, a structure from beginning to end. So I wonder why you chose the, the particular form uh, that you did uh, in, in this book. Well, I think uh, the key word there is montage, and it's like there is a lot of, it's almost like a strip of film. You've got all these bits with space between them and so on, and it adds up to a kind of almost flickering effect. I mean, I'd, I didn't think I could do the kind of the proper Fassbinder book because it would take years and years and years. And I don't speak German. And I didn't read German. And I'm not the right person to do it. Um, so, so I, I kind of made a bet to try and do it in Fassbinder fashion, which is to just do it quickly in two or three months. But it's it's very carefully planned. And um, someone was, was saying to me last week that it read as if I'd started out loving Fassbinder. And started writing a biography and fell out of love with him. That's not actually true. It's it's the the book is um, the picture of Fassbinder is that he's it's it's very dark, claustrophobic. His art is very dark, perhaps too dark, partial, too partial, artificial, claustrophobic, not rounded enough. But that could be said of the book as well. The book is all those things, you know. It's it's like it's left out a lot. I mean, for instance, I write a lot about that period, a kind of what we call the post-punk years. It's like, and uh, uh, I write about it again. It's like talking in terms of terrorism and strikes and you know hard drugs and so on. But it was also one of the best times of my life. I had more fun in those years than uh, it's it's possible to say, you know. So. It's it's a deliberately partial, you know. It's like a a, a Fassbinder style book about Fassbinder because it's it's got all of the same faults he has, you know. It's a mirror, in other words. It's you know, the, the word mirror crops up throughout it, 
and in various, the title, yes. for various reasons. Yeah, so I'm not putting myself above Fassbinder. I don't like that when critics kind of say, "Well, he had all these flaws and everything." But you you, know. you address them, but you don't dwell on them yeah. in the book. And uh, I think your appreciation for his art comes through. It has increased, as I said before. You know, it's not just I. I do find some of the worldview hard to take now, I think, which any person who's lived to our age will, you know, it's like, but in terms of the, his achievement and what he got done and how, how brilliantly he did it, uh, uh, yes, it's just that my admiration has increased. Uh, uh, one final, final question. I, I wonder now that the book's been out for a few weeks and uh, you've been doing some events like this interesting event in Brooklyn you were describing uh, to me earlier. Um, what's the audience like? Are they, are they newcomers to Fassbender? Are they people been waiting for this to happen because they've been, you know, Fassbender fans from their, their youth or, or are there new people there coming in? Well, that's a nice thing. I think it's it, both. I, I mean, I, it's a bit like the, the other book I did, my book of writing about music. I was pleased to see that there were young people there, you know, and it's like, it's the same with Fassbinder. Yes, there are hardcore Fassbinder people, you know, but it's nice to see there's a lot of young kids and a lot of uh, people who basically didn't know much about Fassbinder before this, you know, and it's like, uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the book is hopefully will lure, lure people in, you know, and it's like, uh, because if it was a conventional Fassbinder overview or study, I think it would only s appeal to a certain kind of film, not nerd exactly, but I'm a film nerd. It would appeal, it would have a very specific, you know, readership. And I, I, again, I, I, I didn't really want that. I wanted... Well, in, you know, in this era when, again, you can access a lot of this work through uh, Criterion um, or through Netflix or through some of the other streaming services, it really is an opportunity for people to educate themselves about you know the work of a, a you know, genius filmmaker. So, uh, Ian, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, don't forget to check out Ian Penman's work on the City Journal website, www.city-journal.org. Uh, we'll link to his author page in the description, and you can find him on Twitter at pawboy. P a w b OY2. Uh, Ian's new book, and it's called again Fassbinder Thousands of Mirrors, is available on Amazon and other outlets. You can also find City Journal on Twitter at City Journal and on Instagram at City Journal underscore MI. And as always, if you like what you've heard on today's podcast, please give us a nice rating on iTunes. Ian, thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.